Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 20, Where's My Uber? I've spoken before about the incredible population explosion London experienced during the 1800s. In 1815, it was the largest city in the world. By 1851, it had a population that had 38% of its people born outside the city. And by 1860, the population had tripled from what it had been just 50 years earlier to be a crowded cramped city of over 3 million people. As society was changing from an agricultural one to a more industrial one, those growing up on the farms and estates around the kingdom headed towards London to make their fortune and what they believed would be a better life for themselves and their families. Like other cities around the world in this era, London was not a tall city. Skyscrapers hadn't been invented yet, and you needed to live relatively close to work because, you know, no cars. And the nature of businesses meant that the streets were busy basically 24-7. During the night hours when office people were asleep, those people that brought in produce, baked bread, worked in local abattoirs, and any number of jobs that supplied the city with everything it needed, continued working. In 1852, German journalist Max Schlesinger, a man who spent much of his life living in London, summed it up when he said, There is not a single hour in the four and twenty where the main streets were empty. The writing sisters Charlotte and Anne Bronte were in London to visit a publisher. This was someone barely a few hundred yards away from where they were lodging. But so crowded were the streets and the busy crossings that it took them the better part of an hour to make their way to their destination. But it wasn't just the crowds on the street. With all these people moving around constantly and no double glazed windows, you can begin to imagine the level of noise that was a constant in London life. In 1834, Jane Carlyle wrote, quote, I have an everlasting sound in my ears of men, women, children, omnibuses, carriages, glass coaches, street coaches, wagons, carts, dog carts, steeple bells, and doorbells, end quote. The noise in the street was so bad that during the busy times of the day, say early evening, not only were houses shaking, but the vibrations flowed through to shake the very pavement Horses' hooves and iron wheels on granite paving stones created a lot of noise, and the streets were crowded to the point of traffic jam with horses and carts. And also, there was the ever-present noise of street accordions. People described it as like they were at a grinding mill, with the noise endlessly going on and on and on. So why were the streets so noisy? Well came down to what the streets were made of. In the 1820s, the City of London started using macadam as a paving solution 
to ensure that there was a surface that horses didn't slip on. It was also easy to clean and didn't degrade during wet weather. And let's face it, London gets plenty of that. Macadam was a mixture of tiny stones compacted down and then stone blocks were placed upon it. By the mid-1800s, large parts of London were using this surface for their roads. But there were issues, and these were mainly brought about by road contractors cutting costs. Larger stones were cheaper for the road maker, but they didn't adhere to the stone mix well. Some placed gravel or sand on top of stones to cover their work, which was great up until the traffic and the weather quickly took their toll. If compacting wasn't done properly, stones would move, creating ruts and making the horses work that much harder. Surface dirt accumulated on even the best laid roads, and when it rained created a sticky, muddy mess that became known as licky. So that didn't work out well. But the other main competitor to Macadam was granite roads. This was less time consuming to lay, but again, issues arose when the contractors cut corners to save their money. Granite was also a more slick surface than macadam and required regular maintenance of roughing up to ensure that the horses using the road actually had some sort of grip available. And then another option was put forward. Pre-prepared panels could be made off-site, then easily laid like parquetry in the roads, with grooves giving excellent grip in dry weather, and this surface also came with what was regarded as a huge positive. Wood. Yes, you heard me right. Wooden roads. And what was that positive? Well, remember how noisy the city was at this time? Well, wooden roads eliminated a huge amount of this, and it wasn't long before commercial parts of London, such as Oxford Street and Regent Street, were begging for it to be laid in their areas. After all, it meant they no longer had to shout at customers to be heard over the street noise. Isn't technology a wonderful thing? But as wonderful as wooden roads were, there was, as always, a price. These roads had a lifespan of maybe three years at best. In 1843, it was reported in one section of road alone that 19 horses had fallen in just four days. To us today, this is a horrible statistic. We see it from the animal's point of view, and sadly it seems that Victorian England wasn't that invested in animal care. But remember this, an injured horse very well meant a family was going to starve. No horse, no cart, no income. So those relying on their horses took the best care of them that they could. It didn't really last long as an option though, not the least because on hilly areas it couldn't be used at all. In some areas of London though, those areas that had money to pay for the constant upkeep, they kept the wooden roads for the commercial benefits and also outside prominent public buildings like the Central Criminal Court, even up into the next century. The early 1800s also saw another innovation in road paving, having an elevated section either side of the road for pedestrians to use. These days, we just call it a footpath or a sidewalk, but before this time, People walked in the street with no difference between their positions and the rest of the traffic. So you took your risks with those horses and those wagons and those carts that congested the dirty, muddy streets of an overcrowded city. 
I mentioned before about the explosion of the population, but another factor was also the transport increases. Between 1830 and 1850, the number of stagecoaches increased by 50%, and the number of hackney carriages more than doubled. With the increased use of railways, more products were being moved about, so transport carriages increased too. Another big issue that bogged the traffic down throughout London was the toll gates. These days, governments are generally responsible for making and maintaining roads. I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world, but in recent years here in Australia, corporations have taken on the burden of making those large freeways and the highways in return for a contract with the state government for a set period of years, charging tolls for the use of these roads. And in a case of, well, this is the example that shows that history repeats itself, there was a similar situation in London where groups of businessmen would get together and fund a section of road in return for being able to levy tolls on the throughway. You bought a ticket that got you access until midnight of that day, at which time you would have to buy another ticket. So you might buy a ticket, go to a party, but if you came home after midnight, yep, you're paying for another ticket. Humans being humans, the toll keepers would often keep their gates down when close to midnight to deliberately hold up people to make them pay for the next day and skim the profits off accordingly. Each one of these tolls meant delays in your travel time and there were many of them so they helped to add to the incredible congestion of London. After around 1850, the government started abolishing some of the tollways in an attempt to try and relieve the congestion but many of them remained in place for decades. So you can imagine the congestion already, yes? Well, add to that the fact that in terms of road rules, pretty much anything was legal. Left side, right side really wasn't a thing at this point. If your bus was on the left side of the road and you pulled the strap for disembarking to the right, the bus would simply cross over to let you out. Etiquette may have been everything in Victorian England, and it's certainly known for having many social rules, but they were treated like as a guideline, basically, because anyone on the streets for commercial profit, such as buses, delivery people, and so on, would ignore the guidelines because it was expedient to them and time was, after all, money. Finally, in 1852, the police issued a notice for the traffic at Marble Arch, which was to the north of Hyde Park that carriages must stay to the left and were no longer allowed to cross over to simply drop someone off. Another cause of congestion was the fact that many of London's carriages had to cope with steep hills throughout the city, and their horses couldn't deal with the inclines. This meant at times that an extra horse or two would need to be harnessed to the existing group to aid in just that hill. Some companies literally kept horses at steep spots to be used when their carriages came through. So not only did you have the delay when these extras were harnessed on and then unharnessed, you also had the crowding they created while they were kept at these busy spots all day. Unfortunately, accidents were a regular occurrence too, and we know what they're like today when two cars crash and the delays that that causes. Well, in the 1800s, carriages would overturn regularly, spilling passengers out across the street as well as injuring the poor horses. Many of these spills were caused by the mud and manure on the streets, and enterprising children, as well as professionals known as cross-sweepers, would, for a coin or two, 
or even just clothing, keep a section of the road clean and far more safe. They did this job all year round, many of them old or very young, and usually coatless, hatless, and barefoot. So how did you get around this incredibly crowded, teeming city? Well, if you had the money, you went on horseback. But the expense of maintaining a horse and stable, as well as having somewhere near work to stable it, made this something only the rich could afford. Throughout the century, many bridges were built, but this took time and many people had to cross from one side of the Thames to the other. So rather than horse, people would take a ferry or any other number of small boats that offered crossings. Steamers would also run upstream and downstream between the bridges of the city. These were about 10 feet wide and about 18 feet long, with their funnels having the capability of being tipped on hinges to allow them to go under the bridges. Despite the competition of the new railway services in the city, which was yet another source of traffic congestion, these ferry services continued successfully for decades. During the 1840s, at the height of their success, these ferries were running between London and Westminster bridges every four minutes and carrying over 13,000 passengers a day. Becoming known as penny steamers because of the cost of a ticket, they had little shelter and virtually no seating, so you can imagine what it was like on a rainy day with nowhere to go. Lucky it was only a penny, I guess. And it was lucky it was only a penny, because between 1835 and 1838, 12 of these ferries were involved in collisions which killed 43 people. And in 1847, a ferry called the Cricket suffered a massive explosion. Parts of the boiler were found 300 yards away and six people were killed. It was later found that an engineer had tied open the safety valves so that they couldn't cut off the steam while he took a dodgy break. He was later convicted of manslaughter. Up until the 1830s, one of the main forms of transport was the short stagecoach, or short stage as it was called. This was the main method of transportation when needed. They were smaller and more comfortable than the larger ones that did cross-country travel, if you were so inclined. While they might have been comfortable, they were also known for being slow and stopping every chance they had to get another passenger or drop someone off. Now that's all very well if you're only doing a short trip, but kind of annoying being on a stops or station transport when you just want to get to where you're going. And it was in 1828 that George Schillebeer was visiting Paris and saw their omnibuses and thought they'll work in London. So with some modifications to allow for the narrower streets, they were soon in service and proved hugely popular, especially with people who would tip a driver to ensure that their seat was available the next time they rode. Let's face it, catching a train and not having a seat isn't the best. Imagine if you could do that today. Just book your seat and ensure that you had one when you got on, avoiding all the crowded hassles. Might be something in that, I think. Anyway. Carrying 14 people inside, they were later modified to carry more on top. 
However, there was no way a woman in the clothing of the time could sit up there. Aside from the small ladder that was used, your legs dangled over the side. How unseemly. The inside was narrow and cramped with the floor covered in straw in an attempt to keep out the damp and cold, but it quickly became filthy. Despite this, they quickly cut into the businesses running short stage coaches. Kind of like Uber versus taxis these days, I guess. And again, there's history and the example of where it's repeating itself. They expanded their routes as well as their hours of operation to the point where a mere 20 years after starting on the streets of London, they were carrying over 37 million passengers a year. In the early days, ticketing didn't exist, just a reliance on the driver and conductor to be honest about how many passengers they had. And yes, I'm sure I'm going to surprise you here when I say they lied. They made a tidy sum reporting lower numbers of passengers, and that's aside from the fact that once it started raining on a trip, they'd charge extra, claiming the expense had to cover the price of the required extra horse to get up the London slopes. Humans being humans, once the tickets were brought in, drivers and conductors, who were called cads, then had complaints lodged against them because now they had no fiscal incentive to try and work harder to get more customers. But along with a semi-dodgy omnibus system, it was during the mid-1800s that the railway, or what was known as the Underground, came into service in the main neighbourhoods of London. As always, there will always be those that complain about the construction of tunnels and stations for the city rail. And I get that, I really do. Even now here in Australia, we get complaints from people living in areas that have overpasses being put in to help with traffic and crossing issues, as well as new underground tunnels for our train system. That said, having travelled on the London Underground, <laughs> I really do find it to be a fantastic transport system. Maybe I'm seeing it with the rose-coloured glasses of a tourist, but after decades of dealing with the monstrosity that is the Victorian railway service, it was quite the revelation to enjoy travelling by train so easily and efficiently. So if you're in London, be grateful for what you have. You could try Melbourne's system and realise what public transport pain really is. But it was in January of 1863 that the first line of what became known as the Tube opened. Running from Paddington Station and Farringdon Street, it had six stops in between and on the first day, 30,000 people took a ride along this new technological marvel. Obviously with success like this, extensions were planned and so the Tube expanded across the city. By the 1870s, the main metropolitan line was carrying about 48 million people a year. Aside from this volume approach to getting about town, there was the Hackney Coach. These were formerly private coaches that had been bought and then repurposed for public use. Seating four at most, they really weren't the best in terms of, well, anything. They were ill-maintained and dirty, they had broken panels and poorly cared-for horses were the norm. In many cases, they overturned as they raced through the city, so you were really taking your life in your own hands when using one. They even had their own nickname, Growlers. Why Growlers? Well, because of the bad temper of the drivers. So why would you use one? Because you could step from your home in London, shout for one, and they'd be right there. There were over a thousand of these in London, and they wait in the streets ready to pick up anyone that needed a ride. 
But if you had the money, well, the 19th century bought you the latest in publicly available transport. In 1823, a one-horse, two-wheeled transport appeared on the streets of London. Using the French term for little leap, cabriolet, the name was quickly shortened to one we're familiar with, the cab. Again, it was modified for the City of London by architect Joseph Hansom. The Hansom safety cab was lower to the ground with larger wheels, and this meant a smoother ride and also a much safer one. Seating two people, it was more expensive, but you had a great deal more comfort, and the design meant that the driver sat up behind you, so you had a clear view while also being undercover from the weather. As I said, they were more expensive, but the comfort and convenience saw their numbers explode across the city. By the 1860s, there was a cab for every 413 residents of the city. That's pretty impressive when you realise that today the figure is around one cab per 300 people. These forms of transport were paid for by the mile, and again, humans being humans, Cabbies often debated over the actual distance covered because it meant more money in the pocket. This did sometimes lead to locals calling for police to intervene and resolve the situation, and it didn't help that in many cases, the cabbies themselves were often subletting the cab and working for someone else. Many lost their licenses for drinking and these bucks, as they were known, would take the risk and continue cabbing without their licenses. I know legally it was wrong, but in those days, not working meant dying from starvation, so I do have to lend them a little bit of sympathy there. Aside from the tube and the omnibuses and the hansom cabs, there were other forms of transport in the busy, dirty, muddy streets of London. Brothams carried two people on two wheels pulled by either one or two horses and sometimes had a third facing backward seat. Another model was called the Victoria. These were modern, stylish, four-wheeled carriages that had a folding cover, but with four wheels, they were slower than others, as they were also more difficult to drive on the narrow streets. The lighter cousin to the cab was the Tilbury. Now, this was easier on the horses because they were lighter, but they also gave a far bumpier ride. Tilburys and cabs were Quiet on the roads though. Now, I know that sounds great to us, but remember, we're still in the era of gas-lit streets. They're barely lit, and quiet cabs do not a good mix make. Many of the cabs adapted to having a lamp on them, just so it could try and avoid any sort of accident. It did help to light the streets, just a little bit more than what they were already, but with the soot from the wicks quickly clouding the glass lantern, it wasn't anything groundbreaking in terms of suddenly having a well-lit street. So that covers some of the types of ways that you could travel around London. What I'm hoping you'll be envisaging is that the already crowded streets of London weren't just bustling with people like we see in the movies, but there's all these sorts of wagons and cabs and carriages and omnibuses. And with all these horses and the accompanying stable stops and manure everywhere, you can start to see how much they added to the volume of crowds and noise and smell of the city. I'd call it organised chaos. Except when you add the complete lack of road rules, it's just disorganised chaos. Which is a tautology, I know. So next time you have to get public transport, as bad as it might be, at least you're not out in the weather covered in muck and stepping in heaven's knows what on that wooden road.
So here endeth the episode. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening on Twitter at Vic Gaslamp and my Instagram account is Victorian Gaslamp. Post there probably a couple of times a week and I do it as a bit of a, an extra aside to the podcast itself. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>